Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Sean Creedon. Sean is the Director of Acquisitions with Bercadia. How are you, Sean? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Here in uh, lovely San Mateo. Where are you? Uh, where's your home office? I'm in Oakland, California, up in the Bay Area. Oaktown. I used to live in Oakland. I used to live by Adams Point, if you know where that oh, yeah. is. We've spoken about that before. Yep. It's a nice, yeah. nice happening part of town. I love Oakland. Are you are you from the Bay Area originally? I'm not. I grew up in the East Coast, uh, Massachusetts, and uh, made my way slowly west. I went to school in the Midwest and came to California for what I thought was a trial year in the late 90s, and I'm still here. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's hard to go back. Yeah, I grew up in New yeah. Jersey and then uh, New York, and yeah, I came out here about ten years ago. Yeah, okay. It's good to visit back east, but like, it's tough to like, like right now, like there's a big snowstorm coming. It's like yeah. it's cool for the first day of the snowstorm, but for like the week, and then the month, and then the four months, it's of, of snow and darkness. It's just yeah. There's there's a reason I I stuck around for twenty plus years out here. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I mean, can you tell everyone uh, about Bercadia and what you do there? Sure. So I'm at uh, Bercadia. Um, I'm in the affordable housing division of Bercadia. Uh, Bercadia is a, a joint venture privately held between Berkshire Hathaway and the Jefferies Financial Group. Um, and they're the largest non-bank servicer in the commercial real estate industry. Um, the Bercadia Affordable is a dedicated platform working across the country. And we're made up of a mortgage banking team, a tax credit syndication team that I'm a part of, and an investment sales brokerage team that specializes and focuses exclusively on affordable housing transactions throughout the country. So the tax credit syndication team, can you? Sure. So you're, I am a developer. Yep. And I'm trying to build affordable housing property in wherever, California. And I get approved. It's it's like, do you get approved by the, the state, the yeah, the state yeah, first, the state. and then you get to, then you go to you. Like, what's the process? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a the low income housing tax credit program is a federal program, but it's administered at, at each of the state levels. So you being the developer here in this example, you would um, you'd be going into the state to apply, put your project in through the application process to get allocated um, a, an amount of tax credits that you can then come to me and I will help you raise the money to purchase those tax credits. So I get the tax credits. I put them in a fund for an investor. You get the equity that I raised for those tax credits to build and construct your project, whether it be new or uh, a rehabilitation project. Where are those funds coming from like we're raising sure yeah uh, so uh, largely banks um i would say banks make up about 75 percent of the uh equity investing that goes on on an annual basis um with the remainder being insurance companies and and kind of the motivations for each of those players banks um are mandated under the cra act community reinvestment act 
that mandates that they make investments in the communities where they take deposits. So they have a sort of fairly um, onerous mandate to invest um, in, in their communities. This is an easy way for them to hit uh, with large numbers to hit those mandates. Um, and then insurance companies do it a little bit different. They're not mandated under any CRA, um, but they do it because it matches up nicely with, and specifically, it's usually life insurance companies. Life insurance companies have long-term profitability that they can forecast out 10, 15 years in the future. And these investments are 15-year holds. So they really line up nicely with uh, an insurance company's ability to take these tax credits and offset their profits for a, a, a known stream of time. Gotcha. So you're raising money from these places. And then, so the insurance company now owns the tax credits? Insurance company takes uh, an interest um, or the bank takes an interest in a partnership that would be between you, the general partner, and then my entity, the fund that I'm creating, of which the bank or investment uh, insurance company is a part of, is the limited partner. And so there's a partnership there that lasts for 15 years, um, where up front, I'm contributing, uh, the, the bank is contributing through my fund, the money for you to do your deal. And then <clears throat> we remain partners, and you then have to keep your property restricted to a certain you know, income levels for the renters, and you're going to deliver, the project is going to throw off tax credits that were allocated and tax losses from depreciation, amortization, and other things that generate losses from real estate investing. And so we're going to have a partnership. I'm going to, me as Bercadia here, I'm going to asset manage for on behalf of the investors, the investment with you. And then uh, in exchange, you know, our investor is going to get all these benefits and you're going to just keep doing what you need to do to keep your property in compliance. There's a lot of compliance and regulations that go along with getting these allocations of tax credits from the state. The biggest one of which is the, 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 the mission of the whole program is to provide housing for people at lower income stratas. So if you can't go then and make it a market rate deal three years into it, because then you'd be, you know, you'd be running afoul of the rules that were awarded the credits for. So you have relationships with the banks and the life insurance companies, right? Is that what Bercadia or your role in Bercadia yeah, is? Exactly. Well, my, not per se, I'm more developer facing. So I'm glad that you use that as your example of you being the developer. <laughs> um, I, I definitely work on both sides, but my specialty is on the acquisition side or the de developer facing side. And then I have colleagues who are out raising the money and we work in tandem with one another to match up where our investors may need a particular investment and where our developers that we work with have projects that they're going to work on. And it's very much geographically driven because you've got a bank might be very heavily um, footprinted in New York. And so they're going to invest in New York transactions. Then you've got another bank that might be more West coast. They're going to look for California deals um, because the CRA mandate is driven by where are you physically located and where do you need to make investments in the community? And so it's very much a geographic focus. Um, whereas the insurance companies invest wherever and they're not caring about geography. So you, you're, you have to know like all the developers locally or 
right? It's kind of like locally and nationally and then, because it's all it's all a function of you know where our investor raising efforts are most successful is where we need to be able to match up developers. So I have a lot. I very well connected in the California space, but um, from from my background and having done this for fifteen plus years now. I have developer relationships that really span from coast to coast and everywhere in between. Gotcha. And then like developers don't have this, they don't have anyone like, there's no need for them to have somebody like kind of doing this in house. Right. It's like, like why go to Bricadia is not like this. Hey, if I'm a principal at a development shop, can I just walk into a bank and say, give me some tax credits type of thing? Or it's, like why? You know it's I mean? a great, no, it's a great question. And, and I think that um, what you'll find is, is the, the, the space that I work in is is comprised of basically two different types of players. Those that do what we do, where we connect the banks and the insurance companies with the projects and act as a fund manager and asset manager. And then there's also banks that work directly with developers. So in your example there, if you, and, and generally those are combined to the really, really large banks because they have staff to do kind of what I do with developers. Mm. But if you're a smaller bank, um, and you have a CRA mandate where you need to get, say, $200 million out on an annual basis, you might be one person or two people in a group, and you have other things you do as well. So it's a lot easier for you to go to someone like me and say, deploy my $200 million into these five markets. I don't have time to think about this because I'm also trying to make loans. I'm also trying to sell other bank products to our existing client base that aren't just real estate people. So it's, it comes down to just a capacity and resource on why there's a, a, a niche for a syndication shop. And you have the, you spend all your day building the relationships too, right? So it's kind of like, yes. it's kind of like why I use a recruiter when, oh, I can just post an ad, right? But it's like, <laughs> why pay all this money to somebody that doesn't work there, right? So it's like, you know, right. my job is to be out there 24 seven talking to real estate people and understanding the marketplace and stuff like that. So sure, sure. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. And then are there different play? And I know there's like the 4% and the 9% and there's the 9%. There's less of them, right? Of the tax credit. Is that correct? Is there different places that I look like, does the life insurance companies only do 9% and the banks only do 4%? Is there anything like that? There, there's certain preferences that, that are, that are investor by investor in terms of what they want to see. Um, you'll generally see that a, a 9% the major difference that I use to, to without getting into too many weeds is the 9% uh, credit <clears throat> generates enough equity to cover roughly 70% of your total project need. Whereas a 4% credit generally covers 30%. So a 4% credit in that it only covers 30% of your project, you need debt to cover the other 70%. So a 4% credit project is going to have a lot more debt on it. And you might have an investor that might be shying away from doing a project that's too highly leveraged. And so some investors might shy away from a 4% deal just because they don't want the leverage component to the deal. Um, they don't want to be exposed to foreclosure as much. The 9% deal, because it has more of its capital being covered or more of the deals covered by the actual equity, usually there's smaller debt load to that deal or, or loans. The loans are just smaller. Um, and generally that means that the rents are lower and it can't support as much debt. So a lot of, you know, a lot of investors may say they want to do more 9% deals. So it's, 
it, I don't think there's an easy way to say insurance companies only do this and banks only do this because they really cross the gamut, but they all have their own little um, constraints and metrics that they're trying to stay within. And nine and four is one of the bigger, you, you hit on one of the bigger distinctions in the market in terms of what a project looks like. Interesting. Yeah. And then are there, why is it nine and four? Like, why do they pick those numbers? Is it just like random? Like, oh, we're going to hand out a bunch of fours and a bunch of nines. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Seriously, I don't really know where it, that, that comes from. It has to do with the, um, the, the when the IRS code that, that dictates this, it's a code in the, in the, in, in the regulations. It has to do with the calculation that goes into um, arriving at the amount of the credit that you're going to get. And a 9% credit is generally you use 9% in the calc to come up with the credit. 4% you use close to 4%. And I can sort of talk about something that might be happening in the new year with the new administration Mm -hmm. that a lot of people in the industry are hoping for. But it has to do with just the, it's, I think it's something about the present value of the credit. Um, the 9% is a 70% present value credit. The 4% credit is a 30% present value credit, but it's, it's ultimately just a mathematical distinction. Um, so it's a roundabout way of saying it's math. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, and, and so right now, if you got a 9%. Now my brain pro- hurts. You said math and I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the 9% um, many years ago, both of these rates used to float with um with the interest rate markets um, and, and they'd go up and down. And so it wasn't always just a 9% or a 4%. It was like at one point, the 9% credit, you technically use something like 7.8% to come up with your credit. The 4% credit, you'd use something like three and a half or 3.6%. And it just had to do with what they were tying it to. And, it, and when we came out of the great recession 10 years ago, thereabouts, what they did was they took that floating rate, 9%, that would be anywhere from 7 to 8, and they just fixed it at 9, which helped provide a lot of liquidity because what that did is the same award that previously would be used, you'd use 7.8 to get to your credit amount, which would drive how much equity you generate, now was using 9. And so that provided this great liquidity and developers and, and everyone rejoiced because of that. Um, the 4% rate has remained floating since since the, the dawn of the program and what they've been talking about and what we've been talking about in the industry and what we've been lobbying for all the advocacy groups is hey we have an affordable housing crisis in this country and one way congress could really simplify or, or at least alleviate that crisis is if we take that floating four percent rate from three it's at its historic low right now because of where interest rates are and it's tied to interest rates it's at a shade above three right now. If you make that fixed at four, all those deals that are relying on that credit, they get roughly a third more in equity. Three to four is a jump of a third. So you're talking about a huge influx of capital that would come in if they fix the 4% rate. It's been talked about for the last year um, with the administration changing. There's a lot more hope that this will happen. That's still sort of out there uh, for speculation whether or not it would happen and how quickly it would happen. But a lot of investors, developers, all the folks that work in my space are looking at that as, wow, this could be a real huge moment for the industry if, if that actually was, were to be passed. And 
the hope is that it gets included in some sort of stimulus bill, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of just keep watching and, and hope it happens. Nice. That's pretty cool. I didn't know about that. Uh, what's the deal flow like in the, now in affordable housing? Is it, are people doing a lot of deals? Yeah. Yeah. We had a real, you know, I would call it a, a pause uh, at the beginning of COVID. A lot of banks just sort of said time out um, and that, and that caused a real seize up in activity. Um, I think at this point in, in, in our COVID world, I think banks have come back to the table and are, are, you know, willing to continue to invest because they have to. Um, but, you know, now they're, they're, they're able to sort of hit the, the unpause button and get back into it. So we're seeing a lot of deals that were sidelined um, now start to get done because they were sort of stacking up in the queue. And now there's just the general, I mean, this is a, I think this is this market just from an equity standpoint on an annual basis, low income housing tax credits. I think it's in uh, 15 billion annually. So it's, I mean, there's a lot that goes on there and there's a lot of players that make those investments. A lot of it's driven by this community reinvestment act mandate where banks get examined every two to three years to make sure they've actually put enough money into that, into that uh, mandate. So yeah, I would say it's largely been, uh, it's coming back. It's, we're not frozen like we were in say June of this past year. Um, and you know, 2021 should be a huge year because you're going to have all these deals that might've been sidelined need to get done. If this 4% rate gets fixed, that'll just make it even a bigger market. Um, so yeah, all systems go at this point. Where, when did that, uh, that bank act come into play? where they had to allocate a certain amount towards I was seventies. That was, that predates the, the, the long-term housing tax credit. That was, uh, I want to say Carter administration. Good old Uh, Jimmy Carter. I'm pretty sure it is. And I'm, you, you, hopefully you don't have any listeners that are going to catch me on that. I'm pretty, it, it, it's, <laughs> Nobody's it that old. Like, Nobody's that old who knows that. <laughs> well, what it, what it was, was you had a lot of banks basically going into communities um, that were, you know, potentially poor or distressed or whatever. And they were mm-hmm. opening up branches and then people would, you know, they take the deposits and then people would walk in and say, I need a loan to do this. And they'd like, no, nope, we're not going to do that. And so oh, yeah. this was a way for them to uh, avoid this redlining that was going on to say, no, if you're going to set up and make money and take deposits and make profit off of a community, you have to put money back into this. And so, you know, there's, this is one of the easiest, biggest dollar hits that you can do. I mean, you know, if, if you do some sort of financial literacy program in the community, that counts, but not at the same clip that, you know, putting a, nine million dollar check into an affordable housing development gets you is this i mean how did you get into this industry i mean it's not you have a long i mean you're not you know an old guy i mean you're my age we're very young um yeah very young handsome guys did you like how did you fall did you want to get into affordable housing was it something that you like even knew about before you got into it like can you just take us back in time and yeah sure I largely fell into it. I was I was in the commercial real estate space um, early on um, in a in a commercial mortgage backed securities um, investing group at at one of the larger investors, GMEC Commercial Mortgage, um, and that was just commercial real estate. And it was a um, it was a frankly it was a it was a move to get into San Francisco from uh, one of the s- suburbs of 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 the Bay Area. I had actually started my career at a winery. 
um, Ian Jake Gallo <laughs> Winter. And, uh, and so I, I took this job and like, you know, yeah, real estate sounds interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to take this job. I'll get it. I was 23, you know, so I was like, all right, this is going to get me into San Francisco. Um, and did that for about five or six years. And that group just sort of went by the wayside eventually that, that market just sort of seized up a little bit in the around Oh five. And Jay Gallo didn't, he's still going. No, no, no. Wine is still <laughs> you know, thriving along. Wine, wine's doing better than ever, but the, uh, <laughs> but, but, the but the CMBS world sort of, you know, my part of the world came to a, a crashing halt and, Luckily, GMAC at the time had a whole affordable housing practice, um, and they were probably one of the largest lenders and investors at the time. And so um, kind of by happenstance, I just got a call. I, I was let go. And then within a week, I was called by um, someone I knew that was in the, in the building at, at the same company. And they said, hey, we're, we're, we're going gangbusters over here. We need someone to come over. You know real estate. We'll teach you affordable housing. Um, so largely I fell into it and something I, I was thinking about the other day preparing for talking to you is I hear so many of these younger folks nowadays that I talk to, they actually like majored in affordable housing or there's like programs, there's LIHTC, low income housing tax credit programs at colleges. I didn't, I went to a, a very traditional school. We, I majored in finance and, and that was, you know, I took all the like sort of bread and butter courses, didn't, would have never known about that there's this whole industry um, that was probably at the time in the nineties, just getting really started. But in any event, yeah, there was no, um, there was no real like push to get into it right out of school. It was sort of by happenstance fell into it. And, you know, obviously I like it because I've continued to do it for 15 years. And I think it, it sort of hits a couple different, you know, scratches some several itches. I think one is it's super complicated. And I think that, to some extent, you know, we all joke that that people that are in our industry, we, we almost, you know, thrive on the brain damage of it because they're not simple deals. They're very complex and it's everything's always changing in terms of regulations that dictate what you need to do or can't do. And I think that from just a how like a social good, I mean, there's not a whole lot better that I could be doing right now in terms of, you know, a, a business in terms of the end product is providing housing and housing is, in my estimation, just the cornerstone of like living. And if you don't have a house, then you're not going to be able to worry about, you know, food and education because you don't have the house. So the shelter is so important. And it's even more important in the midst of this crisis we're in in this country. So I, uh, yeah. So while, while I fell into it and there's certainly people that I, that I'm surrounded with that knew they wanted to go into a threat away because they majored in it in college I'm glad I did land in it. And so it, you know, by, by complete sort of luck of the draw landed in it and have liked it. Yeah. There's people, yeah, there are programs now, people coming out of, you know, good you know, schools where yeah. Yeah, they, learn, they learn about affordable housing. It's great. Um, and I think that just shows it's becoming more of like an institutional asset class. Like people are kind of, and one of the reasons I've started this podcast, cause I, I've been doing recruiting for real estate for 16 years now. And when I started, like, one, I had no idea what affordable housing was. And like 90% of the professionals in real estate had no idea how it worked. And so like, yeah. <laughs> I was just wanted to shine a spotlight on it and like the different career paths. Uh, but speaking of which, like what, when you're on the, the financing side of affordable housing, what's like, you start out like as an analyst, you like get, you're underwriting deals. Is that kind of how it is? And you kind of work your way up. Like, can you give us the trajectory? Yeah. Generally? 
Yeah, I think the trajectory is is generally some sort of analytical role um, because the, because it is so quantitative and so analytical um, that you know you have to kind of start there. I mean, there's definitely other paths, but I think that for the most part, you start as an analyst, um, and you're and you're kind of doing an underwriting function, or you're or you're you're evaluating deals, whether you're actually hardcore underwriting them, or but you're you're evaluating them for. Do they work? Do they not work? What, what, you know, what would need to be changed with this structure to make sure it actually passes all these different rules that need to be passed for these investments to work? Um, and then, then I think you kind of go, you either kind of go into a more of a production role, which is what I do now, where you're, you know, trying to be out there cultivating the new, the new relationships and new business, or you can kind of stay in that analytical side and there's tons of need on that side because these because of the complexity of these deals um that you know it it you really do need strong underwriting and and uh strong analytical skills and even the people that work in production you kind of have to know what you're talking about this is not like putting you in a seat and saying you're going to sell widgets just learn the widget and you'll learn in a couple days and just go sell it and it's you got to know what you're doing and what you're looking at to make sure it actually is going to pass all these various people's, you know, uh, checklists and, and pass muster with all these different people, investors, um, the government, you know, um, so there's, there's, uh, yeah. So I think that those, those would be the, the major career. And then you could specialize in, in either the investor side, you could raise capital or you could try to find the projects or you could asset manage them because these are 15 year investments. You could be the one that kind of manages the deal from when it, when it starts through its 15 year hold period. Interesting. And then so Berkadia has folks that do affordable housing across the country generally in each most, most major markets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a dedicated team of uh, there's mortgage banking uh, folks that, that handle the debt side of the equation. Then there's my folks that do the tax credit equity syndication, capital raising and placing. And then there's actually another arm that does investment sales. So they're actually listing um, and helping helping clients buy and sell their properties. Um, so that's why, you know, as a, as a platform, we can do all three of those things under one roof. And so on the debt side, so you get, you're getting the tax credits, these debt team, they're, where are they raising or getting debt from or raising debt from? Generally. Uh, largely the, the, the agencies, Fannie, Freddie, um, and then as well as, as, as HUD, um, there's also private, um, bank capital that, that, that they work with. There's life insurance companies they work with as well. Um, I think it's the, it's largely the, the agencies and, and FHA, but there's also private sort of bank, um, and other, uh, types of, of capital that can flow into these transactions. Gotcha. And what kind of characteristics make someone in your, what makes you good at your job? Like what, what's certain besides just being a great guy, like what sort of certain presupposing that I'm good. So how do you, how do you, how are you fooling everyone? Maybe that's the most <laughs> more important question. Well, I think you, you, um, going back to the comment a second ago, you, you need to kind of know what you're dealing with in terms of, um, uh, of how to look at a, a project analytically and quantitatively. Um, because if, if you don't have that, then you're, you're really, you could just be bringing everything in all day and it's none of it's going to work. So you do have to have, I think an, a, a bit of an analytical mind. Um, I think you have to be willing to hear no. Um, there's, there's a, 
you know, there's a lot of people that, that do what I do. And uh, if you're a developer or, or a, an investor, you have a lot of options to go with. So you have to be fairly resilient and, and, and sort of stick to it and keep knocking, keep pinging, keep emailing, keep on people, be quick. Um, you, you know, you have to be able to move on your feet pretty quickly because if, if you don't, then there's another person out there that can, that can do this largely the same thing you're doing. Um, and I think you just need to be willing to put yourself out there to, to meet, you know, people, there's, there's a host of different types of developers. There's, there's nonprofit developers. Um, there's housing authorities that develop. There's for-profit developers. They're, they're all shapes and there's mom and pops up to large national organizations. So you kind of have to also like know how you're going to target and how you're going to go out there and develop business. Are you going to go after the nonprofits? Does it make sense to go after them? So you kind of have to, to, to that point of, you know, hit rates, you need to kind of target your, your approach. So you're not just hearing no all the time. You have to know what makes sense for you. And so what makes sense for me, if I worked at a bank and I wasn't going through syndicators, I might operate differently than if I worked at a syndicator um, where we're raising capital from banks. And then if you work, is there a difference on your end, if you're working with a nonprofit or, or a for-profit, like, is there different types of financings that they're allowed to get? There's, um, there are, there are different concerns that a nonprofit might have about their partner and who they partner with and how that partner will treat them, um, at the end of the investment period, um, uh, than, than a for-profit, a nonprofit might be able to avail themselves of more, what we call soft money, soft loans, loans that are largely not, you don't have to pay them back in real time, but they'll sort of accrue there. It's, I don't want to call it free money because it's not, um, and it's not really a grant. It, they are loans, but they're, they help to sort of fill out a capital stack that might not be able to support itself with just purely equity and a, and a permanent mortgage. So they might be able to get more of those types of things. So that the types of deals they do might look different. Um, they might, they might serve like a nonprofit might do a deal that serves a specific um, population segment, like disabled or veterans, um, whereas a for-profit may largely just do more kind of conventional deals. And I'm probably doing a disservice to a lot of for-profit developers out there that do target specific segments. But I'm trying to give sort of yeah. ballpark differences between a for-profit and a nonprofit. And then the housing authority... Um, Oftentimes, they have their their tenant base that they're already serving um, in a local community, and and they'll they will have to keep continuing to provide that service and add more housing or rehabilitate existing housing because it's really poorly built decades ago. They'll oftentimes uh, partner with a for profit to come in, and 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 there's synergies there between those two um, players in a transaction like that. So you see all different types of. JVs and and um, and and developer types and that's one thing you just kind of have to know the players and so back to how why am I good or why do we think I'm good is you just kind of have to know the players in 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 a specific market who's going to get the deals done there who who does the strongest deals and if and if there's a deficiency there how do you structure the deal to make sure it'll still work for an investor and we just got off talking about this with my my team is that you know, uh, coming out of COVID now, there's going to be a lot more heightened 
um, stress tests put on transactions that weren't historically there. And so looking at that and, and, you know, you're going to have to structure deals that, that can stand up against those stress tests. And so that's going to be really important as we go through, you know, as an example, we've always just relied on the fact that if we project out a deal over 15 years, we're going to see rents go up 2% a year, every year. And we just sort of use that and that gets us comfortable. And as long as the cash flow looks good each year, based on that, we're good. We don't think about, well, are we going to have rents going up? Because rents are tied to incomes and our incomes really going to go up now, given that people are out of jobs and have been, have taken steps back in their careers or, or whatever they do. And so, you know, those are types of stress tests that we're going to start to do. And so I guess that was a really long answer to what, well, that's good. That's what makes potentially good at this. <laughs> yeah. The global pandemic stress test. Yeah. Just went through it um, or going through it. What um, have you, do you find I I'm a recruiter, so I only see a limited scope, but like, do you find like during like the, like before COVID everyone was saying, oh, this is the end of a cycle, the end of a cycle. Um, do you find towards the end of a cycle or when things are a little more unstable that more like institutional capital flows towards affordable housing just because it's kind of a more stable return generally? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, that I think you always see a, a good, healthy amount of capital coming to this asset class because it it always really performs when when it's when the economy is bad, more people need this housing, unfortunately. So mm -hmm. the economy is bad, th th more of this is getting built. Um, and, and when the economy is bad, other asset classes are not doing as well. And historically, we have statistics that show that affordable housing has a infinitesimal, you know, minor, minor foreclosure rate. Uh, I think it's less than a half a percent. Mm -hmm. So I think that historically, investors have liked this. It's not the highest yielding it's not the sexiest investment but it's stable it it performs over time and largely doesn't never defaults and and a lot of that is driven by if you're talking about a a, a multifamily building one is affordable and one is just conventional market rate the one that's affordable depending on the market you're in you're in the rent for that unit in the affordable project is going to be at a huge discount to the rents that prevail in that market so the ability to keep a project like that full operating and, and, and cash flowing to cover its debt is a lot greater chance of that happening than is this project over here that's trying to get, you know, the top of the market rent mm -hmm. with top of the market amenities and, and costs. And so which one, as if you're looking for a safe, stable return, you go here on top of that, a bank gets this CRA credit. So it's sort of you know, and they get tax mitigation. So they, it's a, they can check a lot of different boxes there from a risk standpoint, a regulatory standpoint and a tax standpoint with an investment in this versus, you know, a market rate deal. Yeah. Sounds like that's, yeah, it sounds great. Uh, <laughs> less risk. Yeah. Um, are you ready for the hot seat? I thought I was already in the hot seat. Oh no, it gets <laughs> a lot hotter, Sean. <laughs> I'm ready. Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. 
They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR functions. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Just you wait. <laughs> I love it. All right. During COVID, I have been, I ran out of TV shows to watch. Are you watching any shows during COVID? Yeah, plenty of them. Yeah. What have, what have we, we just got done with a bunch of Shit's Creek, which we thought was really funny. <laughs> That's a good one, right? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. My, my wife has a tendency, though, to skip ahead on me. So then I'm just sort of coming back in and out. And so, yeah, but, but what I what I saw, I liked. Um, trying to think of other ones. Not, nothing that jumps into my brain right now. What about The Mandalorian? Have you seen that? I have not, but I've heard people say it's really good. So maybe that's one to put on my list. It's, it is the way. You should do it, yeah. It is the way. That's from that show. Uh, so you mentioned you have kids. What do you like to do outside of work? Spend time with the kids. I got a five-year-old and a 17-month-old. Um, Darn. Good for you, man. Just taught the five-year-old to ride a bike finally. So and she'll be getting a new properly sized bike in about a week for Christmas. Awesome. Which I'm happy about to, to let her know. I will, we, no one on this podcast will tell her. Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've sort of uh, picked back up my golf game after uh, 20 years of really not paying attention or playing at all and um, have really enjoyed doing that with a group of uh, guys out here that, that like to play regularly and um, didn't think that would have happened during COVID with two kids under the age of six. But yeah. the wife is generally acceptable of, of the golf time, so nice. I'm taking advantage of that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, now, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Whew. Wasn't that long ago. You know, I, I probably would have majored in something different than business um, because I feel as though what I've learned is that I don't know that I necessarily would have been in any different position today doing what I do had I, you know, had I just majored in something that really more intrigued me, some, something more in the social sciences. Um, but I think I felt at the time that, uh, you know, I, I need to get a finance degree so I can go get a job. And I, I could be doing this without having had a finance degree. Um, and there'd be, I'd be none the wiser. So I think that I would have, uh, I would have, yeah, I would have de definitely chosen something that's a little bit more intriguing. And had I, had I, maybe I would, be listening to more podcasts now, but as it is, I'm not listening <laughs> to podcasts. So, um, well, do you well, you pick one of the harder major? I, I mean, I did the history, political science thing, and I, I, mean, I found it fascinating. I loved it. I was really, I really enjoyed it. But then I had like roommates who were like engineering, finance. I'm like, wow, you guys look miserable. That was a lot of work. And I'm like yeah, sitting yeah. back and like playing hacky sack, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, there was there was a couple of friends that did this this major they had at my at my school. It was 
American studies. And I mean, that's the one I did. That's the one I did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, just like the one I did. Yeah. I mean, like thinking back, like that would have been so much cooler and so much more like enjoyable than trying to figure out, you know, complex financial things. And again, stuff that I never really touched again and can't look to today and say, Oh, this is helping me so much today. So, um, yeah. And I probably would have not stopped golfing. I'd be a lot better now if I had just <laughs> kept with it. So yeah, American studies um, would have more time to golf. I love American have studies. You, golf, get to yeah. you got to understand like the place and you get to like choose different, you know, history courses that were American film courses that were American. It was really, it was great. It was a good major. Yeah. Um, now what do you look for? And well, let me backtrack a little bit. I just, this is a, I'm a recruiter. I'm sure there's people on here looking for jobs or just kind of getting ideas about different types of jobs. So what do you look for in hiring people? I know you're not speaking on behalf of Bricadia or like, uh, yeah, sure. Gonna, but just kind of general overview. I, I think it, to me, it starts with kind of attitude um, and openness to, to learning and, and sort of uh, a humility to, um, to, to, you know, learn and, and adapt to something that, you know, this, this industry is not always, um, logical a lot of times it's counter logical to what someone might think about general real estate so if i was hiring in this space which i think is the genesis of the question i would be wanting to know that someone doesn't think they already know it all when they walk in because i guarantee you they don't um especially if i was hiring at a lower you know more junior level and i think that you know some proficiency in 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 being able to look at something analytically and quantitatively because I think it's really important to have that. Um, and then, frankly, someone that's better at, at tech than I am, because, I mean, I, and I would expect that that's just going to be natural nowadays, that, that um, the, the kids coming out of school are just going to be better at that than I am. And so that would be something that would be beneficial yeah. if they were going to work for me to be really good with and comfortable with the tech part. So I think openness to learn, humility, quantitative, analytical, and then, you know, tech whatever tech means. I just know it, it's something. And, and, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm not in that world as much, but I know we, we use it a lot at Percadia and, uh, and there's, there's a lot of data tools that, um, you need to know how to use and present them. And I think I'm getting better at it, but I'd love to have someone that's a lot better than me at it to sort of compliment. I am a hundred percent on board with that. I, that is one thing I look for. It's amazing. Like just outsource that. Like, I don't understand this. I don't even need to right now. So yeah. go for it. Um, well, Sean Creedon, director of acquisitions at Bercadia. Thank you for your time. That was great. Thank you, Chris. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG real estate podcast. Please visit us online at TBG realestate.com or on Instagram at TBG real estate until next time. Have a great week.